From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know, I remember bringing my daughter home and and sort of carrying the car seat into the house and putting it down and then being like, oh, my God, it's going to wake up. Like, what then what do we do? Like, I have no idea what is happening here. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. As you know, I had a child recently. Um, which has been, an, uh, I don't know. I don't know how you talk about it. That, that'll come up in this conversation that I really don't know how to talk about this <laughs> um, and don't even really feel comfortable doing it. But like a lot of um, people of a empirical mindset, maybe I'll say, who, who've had a child uh, in the last couple of years, I've found myself really, really attached to the books of Emily Oster. Um, Emily Oster is a professor of economics at Brown University, a fantastic economist who I, I knew just as a, somebody who covered economics some years ago. Last couple of years, she's written now two books. Um, one was Expecting Better, uh, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. And the new book is Crib Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting from Birth to Preschool. And what both of these books are, it, it's something interesting. It's something very common in academic work and not at all common in, in books or journalism. They're literature reviews. She is taking on question after question that attaches to, to pregnancy or the early years of having a kid. You know, can you have deli meat? How much caffeine can you have when you're pregnant? Um, all the way to a kid of should you sleep train? What about breastfeeding? How much does that do? And the thing she's doing is looking through the evidence that our recommendations are based off of and trying to say, well, what do we really know? And it is astonishing how often the answer is not very much at all. So this is a, a conversation with someone whose work has been very helpful for me and just trying to, to, to navigate a new, a new part of my life. Um, it's a conversation that has a lot of, if you are having a kid or thinking of having a kid, really actionable information, right? There's a lot of really good information here. But on some bigger level, it's a conversation about empirical work itself. It's a conversation about how we know what we know and whether we really know it. It's a conversation about how much in our world that is is passed down to us from, from people in positions of authority, in this case, often pediatricians and, and other doctors, but, you know, extrapolated out to politicians, um, economists, all, all kinds of people. How much of it is based on not that much really at all? Um, and how much of it can change? So I, I think as a as a exploration of meta-knowledge of how we know what we know, this conversation is is really quite interesting and in some ways maybe even a little bit depressing. What's funny is I, I had I taped this on the same day as my conversation with Michael Brendan Dougherty, where we talked a lot about 
wonkishness and technocracy and 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 the limits of social science and and where in that question I was in some ways defending those ideas with him I think this is the the other side of it where if you want to believe in that then you also have to believe in the limits right if you want to be evidence oriented and data based then it is incumbent on you to know well is that evidence actually good the fact that whoever is telling it to you has a degree doesn't doesn't always tell you that so thank you to Emily Oster for her work but also of course for being here Emily Oster, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I think I have to do the the thing here and just thank you. <laughs> it is so hard to figure out anything about pregnancy and having a kid and now parenting. And at least having somebody tell you that you're not crazy when all the data seems contradictory and often bad and based on nothing that anybody can tell you, it at least makes you stay sane, even if there aren't great answers out there. No, exactly. I mean, it's it, it is an awful lot to be faced with. So it's good to know that you shouldn't listen to all of it. Or maybe any of it. So you've now written you've written a book on on the the evidence around pregnancy and 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 now the evidence around a child's early years and it seems to me a big message of both books is how bad and sometimes absent the underlying evidence for what are taken as um, truisms in, in in how to bear and parent a child are has this has has this work been disillusioning for you as somebody who cares about cares about evidence and empirics. Yes, to some extent. I mean, I think I think you you hit on sort of two two parts of it. One is the the part where the data is bad, which I think I had sort of anticipated would would be true when I came into this, but it was probably more true than I had than I had feared. Um, just the the quality of some of the evidence that we're using to make what seem like very certain statements uh, is is really not there. And then I think the other piece of it is just the absence that so many of these choices that we have to make in pregnancy and parenting, we're doing without data or with only a tiny bit of data that maybe is from 1953. And I think that that, that is a very frustrating and, and yeah, it's very frustrating. So let's speak about going through some of the specifics and we'll kind of get into the, the general questions I think all this raises. What are some things parents know are true, that they're told are true? that you don't think are provably true? So I think one that that comes up right away is uh, is that breastfeeding has huge long-term benefits for your kid. I spent a lot of time on breastfeeding in the book. I think that there is good evidence that breastfeeding has some small positive impacts early on. Maybe it's a bit better for digestion. Uh, maybe it decreases some early on ear infections, actually has some good impacts on breast cancer rates for the mom. But the sort of grandiose claims that we see made all the time in the popular media or in your doctor's office even sometimes about, you know, breastfeeding is going to be the way to get your kid a higher IQ and less likely to be obese and make better friendships for you. You know, those kind of claims are just not supported in the in the best data on this. And I think that that's something which people find pretty surprising when you tell them that, given the rhetoric around this behavior. Talk me through the breastfeeding and IQ data, because that is something I had heard. It's something I believed until I read the book. And I do think it's something that's used really as a cudgel against, I would say new parents, but particularly new moms. Um, so can yeah. you talk about where that idea came from and, and why you don't think it holds up? Sure. So um, so a lot of evidence on breastfeeding is uh, is generated by comparing the kids of moms who breastfeed to the kids of moms who do not. Just in the raw data. Uh, and when you do that, um, it is very easy to see that the children of moms who breastfeed have on average higher IQ scores than the kids of moms who do not. And I think that that basic comparison is the source of this 
this claim that that breastfeeding raises IQ. The issue is that there are actually tons of other things that are different between those two groups. So in particular, uh, breastfeeding rates were quite low in the early 70s, and then they took off over over the last, you know, I guess, 40 years now, 40, 50 years. And those increases are way larger among highly educated women. And so on average now, if you look in the in the data, highly educated women, white women, married women, women in their 30s are much more likely to breastfeed than other groups. And those women also have, on average, kids who perform better in school, do better on tests than than others. And so when you look at the at the data on breastfeeding, it's actually very hard to know whether the differences in child IQ are about the breastfeeding or maybe about all of the other things that are different about these moms. And so I think in order to answer this question well, we actually have to look at at better data. And so I sort of talk in the book about two two pieces of better data. Uh, one is a randomized controlled trial, so of which there's basically one, um, and it you know it's not perfect. That's amazing, by the, the way, just for the record. I know, I know. I mean, it's it's yes, I agree. Um, Such a big important thing, and we have one randomized controlled trial on this. Yeah, and it's from Belarus in the 1990s, so it, it like it's old. It's from a sort of different context, but you know when you dig in there, um, the the kids of the moms who were encouraged to breastfeed don't actually do any better on IQ tests than the kids of the moms who who were not. So that's a sort of null result. But we'd say like there's no no impact of of breastfeeding on IQ in those data. And then I think the other piece of data that I like a lot is the data on siblings, where they actually compare two siblings to you know kids born to the same mother. Uh, where one of them was breastfed and one of them was not. And again, you know, that's not a perfect comparison either. But when you do that, you again see there's there's no impact of breastfeeding on IQ. And I think those pieces of data together combined with some other things you can sort of glean if you squint at the at the first kind of data I talked about really do not suggest that breastfeeding raises your kid's IQ. There's an interesting sub story in the data you talk about. I think this is from the, the, the twin studies or the sibling studies, which is that there did appear to be a relationship, but it's because we were using education as a proxy for IQ. And it turns out education is an imperfect proxy for IQ. And that struck me as an interesting, like you would have thought that would work, but 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 even that is is a is a, a a twisting too far. Yeah, I think that what happens in these studies is that we we say, okay, well, you know, I know these mothers are different, um, but I can I adjusted for their differences in education. But it turns out like that's that's a that's good, but that's not enough because even within moms with the same amount of education, there are differences in IQ. Those differences correlate with breastfeeding, and then they also correlate with IQ. So there's a lot of things. The sort of economics term would be unobservables. Uh, there are a lot of unobservables that things we don't see about the the moms that that matter for both the breastfeeding, but also for the IQ outcomes. So uh, another p- thing you go through in the book that I want to talk about, and I alluded to this when we were when we were connecting here, is something that that you had done that has really improved my life. <laughs> Um, and so I'll, I'll tell a bit of a story. So I had a kid, uh, we had our, our, our first child now about eight weeks ago, um, but he was six weeks early. And so it was very, and it was very intense and a lot of it was scary. And thank God he's doing wonderfully. But so now we're home. And no matter what you search on the Internet about parenting, it's a little bit like when you look up if you have a headache, it's like maybe nothing but probably cancer. Um, it's like everything when you're trying to search about how to get your kid to sleep, which is the only thing you search as a, as a new parent, is about SIDS. Uh, sudden infant death syndrome. 
And everything then has like lurking at the back, no matter what you're doing, that you might raise a chance of SIDS. And the the recommendations on this are that you put your child to bed in a bare crib on their back with no blankets or pillows or anything else in there, with no human in there, in the same room as you. Um, and obviously, and, and nobody drinks or smokes. But if your kid doesn't want to sleep that way, which why would you? Um, you know, then it's like you're you're in this. You know, do you put them in the bed and possibly um, lead to their death or and be a terrible parent or what? And it just left like certainly me in this state of constant anxiety and agony uh, until I read your book and found that a lot of it wasn't about the bed or not, but was about drinking and smoking. Um, but but can you talk a bit about that and and the sort of both like the evidence on it and the the cultural like blackmail over it? Yeah. So so I think co-sleeping, uh, sort of the issue of like sleeping in the bed with your kid is one of these things where just both sides are like rabid and can be very angry. I mean, I've I've been on these Facebook groups where you'll see sort of one person say like, you know, co- like co-sleeping is the only way to sleep and it's the most natural thing. And people did it in the cave all the time. And like, you know, we've become too divorced from the cave. And then, you know, the next comment will be like, if you do this, your baby will die for sure. And and it's like, well, those things can't can't both be true. Um, <laughs> and so so, yeah. So what I, I go through the data here and, and, you know, what I talk about is sort of thinking carefully and, and kind of confronting the fact that that, you know, there could be risks. And I think it's very tempting to to try to be very absolute about those risks. But but they're not absolute. So uh, so I think what the data shows us is that, you know, first of all, there are some much safer ways to co-sleep than others. So if you are drinking or smoking or sleeping with a huge amount of covers in your bed, those are all going to you know, really dramatically raise the risks of, of sleeping with your with your baby. Uh, similarly, like sleeping on a sofa is really, really dangerous. Sleeping with your baby on a sofa is is really dangerous. On the other hand, you know, if you are kind of not drinking and not smoking and don't have a lot of covers in your bed, there probably is a little bit of a risk to to co-sleeping, but it's it's very small. It's well within the the range of some other risks that, you know, you are very likely taking all the time like putting your kid in a car. And so in that sense, you may or may not want to make that choice to sleep with your kid and I think that reasonable people would make either choice. But I think it is important to make that choice with the actual data, sort of not that it is either completely safe, you know, for sure. I mean, that's not true. I think the data does suggest a small risk, but it is not an enormous risk. And it is also really important to know that there are ways to do it more safely than than others. And I think that's often missed in these absolute discussions where you think like there's just sleeping in your bed or not. No, there's actually a wide range of ways to do this, some of which are much, much, much safer than than others. Well, one of the the hard things about this space, and certainly for me, a hard thing about parenting is that, one, we're bad at talking about and thinking about risk as human beings. I, I think that a lot of these things just translate into your head and like, okay, more likely to die. <laughs> and, you know, to some degree, it feels like, you know, anything anything on that ratio is is not okay. And on the other hand, we we take risks all the time. And so it it often seems that we have this conversation about things that it's like, I wish we had a standardized way of communicating risk that wasn't uh, percentages. You know, like it is this compared to getting in the car, I think would actually be a great way to standardize all risks. But but as it is, kind of everything ends up in this place at a time when, you know, I, I certainly feel like I'm incredibly risk averse right now. And my sensitivity, I can feel that my sensitivity to threat is like, way higher than it normally is. And I feel like my ability to rationally consume any information on this is 
is is very low and it is and nobody really tries to help. I mean, in part, I think because everything is, you know, people are worried about lawsuits and in part because, as you say, people end up having extremely strong views on on, on all different sides. Yeah. And I I mean, I always I bring up like the car risks all the time because I think that we we have, a, as you say, a hard time with the the idea of a magnitude of risk. And we think, oh, I'm going to do the safest thing. I'm only going to do the safest things. Well, you're, you're probably not always doing the safest things because you are driving. But I think it's hard for people. People think of that as something that, of course, you're going to do. And somehow these other risks are like extra. Uh, and I think that's that's not especially especially helpful. I don't know when I sometimes when I think about people's understanding of probabilities, I think that they're like always sometimes never. And you know, sometimes it's just like sometimes sometimes it happens. And I think it's very hard to be like sometimes is a wide range between almost never and almost always. Uh, and yet that's sort of how we often seem to understand risks. What are what are some things parents don't know are true but are? So I think one thing uh, that a lot of people are not aware of is that it is very important to give your kids peanuts uh, very early in life because it turns out, and this evidence is is pretty new, that actually uh, early exposure to allergens, not just peanuts, actually things like milk and eggs, uh, makes them less likely to be allergic later. Uh, and this is something that I I hadn't sort of thought that much about before I wrote the book and something where actually the the best practices changed between my two kids. So I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. And with the eight-year-old, they told me, don't give her any peanuts until she's two. And with the four-year-old, they were like, give him peanuts as soon as he is eating food because it's really important for preventing allergies. And so that's something where I think actually data really did come in to to tell us what to do. But I think still a lot of people are not fully aware of that. I think you could be listening to this. And certainly I feel reading some of this sometimes. And Thinking about how fast all the recommendations change, uh, you know, on, on the SID stuff, as you note in the book, the recommendation used to be uh, for 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 many kids, you know, sleep face down in the crib, um, but you know, in the crib is bumpers, and and it turns out that's unsafe. Although the bumpers don't seem to be the main issue, and then you know, with peanuts, as you say, it was just in a couple of years, and so there can be a it can elicit almost a nihilism that if everything is going to change, if eggs are going to go from healthy to unhealthy to healthy, then why listen to any of it? Because because what the thoughtful people are telling you right now is going to be the opposite of what they're telling you in six years. Yes, I think it is hard to shake that that feeling about some of this. And I think, you know, sometimes when you dig in the data, you can get a sense of why things are are so variable. So in things like you alluded to eggs, and I think this comes up a lot in studying diet, that, you know, it's like one day eggs are good for you. Then the next day it's like, oh, you have to eat breakfast cereal, no eggs. And now it's eggs are back, but now eggs are not back again. And I think if you if you really dig into those studies, you can see why it's so variable, because actually none of that evidence is especially good. And so, you know, one of the things I try to do in in the book is is help people understand when is the evidence really quite good. So the peanuts are a good example where uh, actually the initial evidence on this was what I would view pretty flimsy. It involved comparing like Jewish kids in in England to Jewish kids in Israel and saying the kids in Israel were less allergic and then saying that was because of this particular Israeli peanut snack. And that seems sort of like, uh, like, are you kidding? That's that's your evidence, you know, the Israeli peanut snacks. I, I also I know exactly what peanut snack you're talking about. The bomba, bomba. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's huge. 
Uh, all, all like, yes, every Israeli advertiser is like, Bamba, of course, you have to have Bamba. Um, but then actually this guy is like a good example of how science, good science evolves. This guy actually went and tested his hypothesis using a randomized trial. And indeed, you know, that was sort of ultimately the data on which these conclusions are are based. But I think it is hard to to know in a lot of these settings when uh, when we're constantly changing the recommendations and people who seem like, you know, experts are saying a different thing, you know, month to month. It, it's hard to really believe that's that's experts, even though, of course, they're saying that because the the science is evolving. Why is so much of the data bad or absent? One issue is it's very hard to run studies on these populations. So I think that is a a big concern. And there's there's reasons for that. I mean, we don't want to be just going around experimenting on pregnant women and their babies and, you know, seeing what happens. So I think that's that's a big part of it, that it's just hard to run these kind of these kind of studies. I think the other thing is, in a lot of these cases, the effects that we are looking for are actually very small. So most maybe this is reassuring, but I think in some ways, one of the messages of the book is that, you know, there are a lot of right decisions and there probably isn't any one decision that's like the make or break decision in your in your life. But that means when we go into the data and we try to say, you know, what's the effect of, you know, of this kind of sleep arrangement versus this other kind of sleep arrangement? The answer is it's probably close to zero. And so in order to detect effects, we would need a huge sample size and a really long follow up. And that would take a really long time and also be super expensive and probably yield nothing. And I think that's that's a barrier to doing some of this work. That that seemed to me in a way that surprised me to be the answer to a lot of the things you considered in the book, which is, you know, maybe if you squint and peer at the very best data, you can come up with a marginal effect in one direction or another. But most things just aren't aren't that big, which was a bit comforting, but was surprising. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the reason it's surprising is partly because as a new parent, everything seems so big. Um, and so, like, I, I tell this story in the book about mittens where, like, when my daughter came home as an infant, we had these mittens on her so she didn't scratch herself. And then my my mom came to visit and she was like, if you don't take those mittens off her, she'll never learn to use her hands, you know, which like now reflecting as a parent of an eight year old, I'm just like, I cannot even imagine why I wasn't just like, OK, see you later, mom. Like, I'm going to go take a walk. Uh, but, you know, at the time, like I have these this paper that I've saved on my computer, this research paper, which is about like mittens and the impacts of mittens on on babies. And it was sort of like in, in the moment, everything seems so important. Like, I have to make the right decision about these mittens or else my kid might never use her hands. Like, that's a real concern for me. And I was like, and I think everything seems like that. And in some sense, the answer is like, not only are mittens not like that, but almost nothing is like that. And I think that's that's kind of freeing. It is right that. Um, and again, I'm a, a brand new parent. So I'm mostly just going off of what your book said. You know, please really hope my kid turns out OK. And this doesn't all end up looking strange in, in retrospect. But Everything feels so weighted. And yet, I guess, you know, kids are resilient and this isn't even the the environment they were they were designed to be resilient in. So I, I, on some level, it makes sense that probably we don't have as much uh, effect over this as we think. But 
But there is something about the entire discourse around this. And I think because, you know, the studies really tend to just look at the kids. They don't look at the parents or the community or anything else. It just everything is about, you know, is it a, is it better or worse? And if it's better, then wouldn't it be selfish to not? And, you know, you don't want to be selfish. It's, you know, your child, you, you, lo- you love them to the end of the earth. It's a very strange discourse. And I was thinking about how much we don't use it in other parts of life. You know, when we talk about poverty policy, we don't, you know, I think to some degree to our detriment, you know, say, well, anything that helps the poor, well, we just have to do that because of course, like otherwise, what kind of people are we or environmental policy or other things? And in other places, we'll let terrible trade-offs go on forever. But, but when you get into the in, into the parenting unit, the, the discourse flips and like any cost is too much to bear. Yeah. And I think it it is to the detriment of of parents because you're sort of all of a sudden like all of your decisions are just about, is there some tiny marginal benefit for my baby, even if the cost for me is like almost, you know, sort of like infinitely large. And I think that that part of that comes from so much focus, even in these kind of evidence places on just the direction of the effect. You know, is this good or not, as opposed to how good is this? Um, and I think that, of course, how good is this? Like, what is the size is a really, really important part piece of this because something can be good, a little bit good. And, you know, there can be other things that that outweigh it. Um, and some other things are really good and, you know, probably you should do them. But but we, we rarely talk about those kind of magnitudes. Uh, on that note, um, as I was saying earlier, the, the main thing I found myself Googling just is anything related to sleep. And our baby's young and we're not at a, a question of sort of how to how to manage sleep, really, except for trying to not die. Um, ourselves, not the, the baby's going to be fine. <laughs> um, but can you talk a bit about what you found when you looked into these questions of, of sleep training? Because I don't think any debate I've stumbled into on Reddit threads at two in the morning is quite as heated. Yeah. So, so sleep training, as as you say, uh, inspires a lot of uh, a lot of feelings, and I think a lot of people uh, are very anxious about the idea of of sleep training. So, just for for people who are not uh, new parents, this refers to the practice of letting your baby uh, cry it out, as they say. So, letting them cry until they fall asleep. Um, and the the reason to do that is um, is that you know not not for your age baby Ezra, but for a, for a slightly older baby. Um, if you do that, typically after a few nights of that, they will sleep much better. Uh, going forward, they kind of learn to to put themselves to sleep. Um, you know, some some people think this is a good idea um, because uh, on average it causes your baby to sleep better, uh, which causes you to sleep better, and that's um, that's sort of good for everybody. And some people think it is terrible and causes your baby to uh, be unable to form meaningful attachments uh, even well into adulthood. Um, so that's a uh, uh, that those are two pretty dichotomous uh, dichotomous views. Um, and so, you know, in the book, I I try to go through the evidence. This is actually a place where the evidence isn't too bad. Um, so we actually have a fairly large number of randomized trials, um, and a lot of them, you know, look at sort of pretty. Uh, immediate outcomes. So they have a sample of people uh, whose kids are struggling to sleep. They tell half of them to let the kid cry it out for for a few nights. They have half of them not to. And you, know, when they look at outcomes like how does the baby sleep, or you know, does the baby seem happy? Actually, if anything, the kids who are who are sleep trained, that yeah, they definitely sleep better. But also, they they their parents report that they're happier now. Whether that's the baby that's happier, or the parents that's happier, it's it's a little tricky. Um, I will say those studies also show quite good impacts for for parents in terms of reductions in depression, increases in marital satisfaction, sort of good things like that. 
On the flip side, you know, these studies are also able to look at, say, or some of the studies are able to look at uh, outcomes for kids much later, or, you know, at like the ages of five or six, trying to figure out, you know, are there these long-term impacts, lack of attachment, behavior problems? And they, they just don't see any evidence of that. So the kids who were sleep trained look just like the kids who were not sleep trained in terms of their behavior in school and, and other kinds of things. So I think that that the evidence kind of comes down on the view that that there aren't these long-term negative impacts that people fear. Now, that's not does not necessarily say that everyone should sleep train uh, their kid. That's a pretty personal choice, and it is um, depends a lot on your family's taste for sleep and what kind of structure you want to have in the household and and so on. But I think if you do want to do this, the evidence um, doesn't suggest any any downsides. To just talk about the the other side of this, the thing you'll hear on this is that um, if you're letting your baby cry, that crying is a very fundamental reflex of babies. And, it, you know, the cries being answered is a way they know that their parents are taking care of them and that they can trust that if something is wrong, they will be helped. And, you know, so there's this, there's this argument that if you don't do it, as you say, you'll, you'll lose attachment. They'll learn that if they cry, nobody's going to come and help them and answer them, that their cortisol levels go up. And I was very surprised where you tracked this argument back to. Can you talk a little bit about the Romania evidence? Yeah. So so the beginning, I think, in, in many ways of this argument is evidence is is an ex- the experience. Evidence isn't quite the right word. The experience um, of people uh, visiting Romanian orphanages. So, so there was a, a period in Romania where um, because of some failures of reproductive policy, there were many, many orphans and many of them were in these orphanages, which were really horrific places with um, very little adult contact for the for the babies. Kids were left for basically years without contacting many adults. There was a lot of physical abuse, sexual abuse, undernourishment, and so on. And you know, th- those kids have struggled, uh, you know, their whole their whole lives. Uh, many of them, even after they they left the orphanages, struggled to form attachments, had other other issues. So I think it's it's clearly a, a very bad episode. One of the things that happened when when people finally came in and visited these orphanages was they noticed that the babies were very quiet. Um, and they didn't cry, which, you know, was because they sort of knew nobody was going to was going to come. And people have taken that and kind of applied it to the experience of of cry it out and saying sort of it's the same phenomenon. You know, your kid is learning that you're not going to come and that, you know, nobody is there for them. And I think that those things are very different. You know, I think that that to say that, you know, having your baby cry for 35 minutes for three nights in a row is comparable to the experience of being in a Romanian orphanage. I think sort of nobody thinks that. But I also think it is it is very hard to uh, to actually say, you know, well, the Romanian orphanage is a thousand times worse. And so the effects will be that direction, but a thousand times smaller. I mean, I know this is not the way that evidence works to evaluate the impacts of cry it out. We have to actually look at that as it is practiced in otherwise, you know, well-nourished, happy kids who are who are loved by their parents. Uh, and this this experience doesn't seem as as relevant. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. 
What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit Wise.com. That's Wise, W-I-S-E.com, Wise.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So you talked about um, sleep training is having an effect on on marital happiness. What do kids do to marriages? It's not positive. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. Um, you know the the evidence suggests that marital satisfaction does decline after you have children, um, which is something people will tell you uh, all the time before you have kids. And and the data does, to some extent, support that. It sort of recovers slowly over time. It's kind of the worst in the first year. Then it sort of recovers. Um, by the time you have grandkids, you're you're pretty happy again. So that's something to look forward to. How big of a decline are we talking about? It's it's not uh, it's not that big, and I think it is it is sort of smaller in some circumstances than than others. Um, so people who who are happier before they have kids and kids who are planned uh, have smaller impacts on satisfaction than if the if there's problems in the marriage to begin with or if the kid kid is unplanned. And I think that sort of makes sense. And so we're talking about decline that when you say they're happier by the time they have grandkids, are you saying that the decline kind of like has only eased by the time of grandkids? Or, you know, are you like, are you talking, are you saying that, you know, you go down to 75% and you're back to 90% in two years? I mean, give, give me some sense of magnitudes here. Yeah, it's hard to get senses of magnitudes because the, the measures of happiness are pretty uh, are, are pretty limited. The biggest declines are in the first year. And then uh, there is sort of some decline after that. And then and then it's kind of back to 100 percent by by grandkids. But it, it, it's it's it, you get back bef- before that <laughs> in most. Of are, the are, do, is there any um, is there anything you do to help? So the one thing that has some some support in the evidence is what's called a, a marital ch- check-in checklist, which involves basically like sitting down with your spouse every, you know, some amount of time and and sort of talking about your marriage and talking about what, um, you know, what is happening and what are the things you're happy with and, and not happy with. And I think, you know, I will say sort of anecdotally for a piece of that is about sort of thinking about what are the people bringing to the marriage. And I think, you know, for me, uh, one of the things I always think about is it's it's hard to acknowledge what the other person is doing in your marriage because you really experience the things that you are doing. 
um, and not the things that they are doing. So I, I talk in the book about sort of realizing how much work the trash is. My husband is like is like in charge of the trash. And I sort of thought of it as like this basic thing. But then one day I had to do it and he had like a, a really long email with like the 50 steps that are involved because there's like this bug stuff that we have to put in it and like all these other things, like particular place it has to go so it doesn't block the door or the drain or other things. And so that actually, I was like, oh, huh, like I guess he's kind of, this is kind of something he should get some some points for. Um, and so I think that's, so that's one thing that that comes up, although, you know, uh, marriage can be hard with kids. Well, one of the things I was thinking about reading, reading the book and reading these sections is how little social or, or policy support there is, not just for having kids, but for, for parents of kids, right? That it, my understanding of, of the literature here is at least some of it is just it's really hard. There's a lot to do. And particularly for a lot, of, you know, and, and, and for a lot of couples, it creates a much, much more stress on the finances, which is like another secondary problem in marriages. And we just we don't have very natalist policy. And I just I wonder if kids were as bad for couplings at times when, you know, extended family was around or in other cultures that are that are more oriented towards children. If, if this is to some degree a reflection of the environment surrounding us or it's just like a like this is just how it is. And, and forever having kids just like it's hard on the it's hard on the partnership. Yeah. I mean, my guess is it's always hard on the it's always been hard on the on the partnership just because even if you're not super into your kids, like it takes some time. I mean, I think I think one of the things you said that I, I really resonate with, though, is this issue of like the, you know, so the U.S. in particular not having particularly natalist policies. And that comes up all the time. And it comes up in the context of maternity leave, but also just in the context of the kinds of supports we provide for for new parents. And, you know, I remember bringing my daughter home and, and sort of carrying the car seat into the house and putting it down and then being like, oh, my God, it's going to wake up. Like, what then what do we do? Like, I have no idea what is happening here. And, you know, in, in Europe, like somebody comes to your house like every few days for like like a month. And they are like, hey, how's it going? Like, do you need help with this? You know, I mean, we have very little of that in the U.S. It's sort of just like we send people home and we're like, OK, see ya. Like, have a good time. It's a baby. It needs food, diapers, so on. You'll be fine. And uh, and I think that we we could really use some more of these of these sort of recognition that the early part of parenting is is confusing and hard. And a lot of people don't have resources and they don't have families uh, that are that are close by and and that they could use some help. We've talked about uh, the sort of marital happiness. What, what do parents do? I'm sorry, children do to just the individual parents happiness. So there's you hear about this sort of all joy, no fun phenomena. I mean, do you did you look much into just what children mean for their parents, not so much for the health of the, the parents relationship? So I don't talk about that much in the book. I mean, I'm sort of familiar with that literature because some of it is inside is inside economics. And I think most of what people find there is that, um, you know, in the moments with your kids, People are not especially happy, uh, but they're very happy that they had the kids. So this is what you said, sort of all joy, no fun, that uh, that it's it's great to have them. But but the sort of experience of being with them is, you know, particularly with little kids can be really tiring. But you you're happy that they exist in principle. I'm thinking about someone listening to this um, podcast and, and who doesn't have kids yet. Maybe they downloaded it out of, you know, <laughs> hopeful interest. And, you know, I'll say when I was when I was thinking about having children, um, I found all this data really, really scary. Um, this idea that, that you'd have a kid and it's something you wanted to do and and feel biologically compelled to do, but it would mess up your relationship and it, you would be unhappy with the time you're actually spending with your kid, but maybe there'd be some abstract. And 
at least so far, it it doesn't feel like the data, you know, it just it's like a much more overwhelming, bizarre, wonderful, scary, et cetera, experience. But I'm I'm curious how you think about that. Right. I mean, in some ways, the way we're talking about it, if you just did a cost benefit, you'd be like, yeah, well, I don't want to mess up my relationship and not be happy with my daily task list. Yeah. I mean, I I think this is this is unfortunately like a very hard thing to to describe in the abstract because it's like the joy of being with your kids and of sort of having your kids there is so immense. And so you, you somehow you don't experience it like like the data, even though if you sort of tagged me in a moment and you were like, are you frustrated with this, you know, with this like particular thing is happening? Like sometimes it'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm frustrated, but but I'm sort of like I'm even in the moment, I think many of us are sort of happy that we're doing it. But I think it's hard. It's it's people tell you, you know, it's hard to describe how you feel about your your kid. And I think that's um, that's that's totally right. And I think the other thing is some of the the doing of things is immensely fun. Um, you know, so when your kid finally like when your kid gets to the point where like you can read books with them that you enjoyed as a child like for me, that's like so great, like to be able to get to like experience Harry Potter again with somebody else is just pure joy. And there are so many things like that with with your kids that are just like you you could not recreate in any other in any other way. So so I agree. It's sort of like it's like the it's like on the observables. It seems like why would you do this? But on the unobservables, it's like, oh, of course you have to, you know, of course you would want to do yeah, this. Yeah, there's a, there's a funny quality to it, at least so far that, that I've found, which is just, I don't know how to talk about it with anybody. It's one of the first things that's happened in my life. And to some degree, I'm a professional communicator. I'm good at talking about my experiences with people. And, you know, my closest friends would be like, how's it going? And to describe it, like nothing's happening at all. I'm just I'm like sitting in one place all day, giving someone a bottle. You know, either I am or or, or my wife is, like every three hours. Um, and yet, like I, I kept like, well, but I looked at him and he had this period of time today when he was really awake and he seemed to be considering me very thoughtfully and be like, that sounds kind of interesting. But like, no, you don't understand. He was considering me thoughtfully, <laughs> and it's just like I feel I feel like I can't communicate. <laughs> with people about what's happening in my life. That's actually been in a weird way the most isolating part of it for me that I I feel like I can't convey the experience of it um in in the way I've been able to to share the experience I've had of life with other people before. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it gets that part of it gets a bit easier as a kid gets older and it's easier to describe like the things that they're doing that are interesting. But it is also the case that the things your kid is doing that you think are interesting, most other people are not that interested in. And that's something that most people learn as they as they go through the parenting that, you know, when you're like, oh, let me tell you, like his poop yep. today <laughs> was very green. It was just totally green. And other people are like, great. Thanks, thanks to, you know, like it turns out other people don't want to know that. I um, I remember but before I had kids and I hope my friends aren't going to hate me for saying this because it's, it's on me, not them. But, you know, I went through sort of a baby boom in my my friend group. And so my Instagram filled up with with kids and you'd go through it. And all of a sudden, like it had gone from being like vacations and food and, you know, whatever um, and to, to just kids and be like, well, all these pictures are kind of the same. And, and now I'm like, no, none of them were the same. He was wearing a hat in this one, but not in this one. And here he had a tiny soccer ball <laughs> that he was holding on his own. And it's such a weird like that part of it is such a weird experience. And it. You know, one of the the things that I've I've thought about a little bit as an analogy is that um, if you like, like data on altered experiences like meditation or psychedelics or something like that, if you if you try to be like, what are you doing now and how much do you like it? You know, like if I'm meditating, I'm like, I'm just sitting still and I like it fine. 
like it's very much a good thing for me to do um and and i i love it in a way that i can't quite describe on a on a time use survey there's like a, a, a an, an element of like the magical and the banal um or you know you talk to somebody who who took mushrooms and they'd be like i stared at a tree all day and like well, that sounds like, okay. Like, no, no, you don't. I like, I was one with nature and a tree <laughs> and having kids seems a little bit like that. It's like this kind of experience that a little bit defies the actual things that are happening in some observable way during it. Yeah. I think it's, it's more than the sum of the parts, but in a way that's, that's, that's just hard to, it's hard to talk about. Um, there's, uh, this is something that I know you don't go into much in the book, but but there's become a debate in the past couple of years, and I think this debate has largely come out of twin studies, about whether parenting really matters at all. And I don't mean here, like, if you don't feed your child, obviously that's going to have an effect. But, you know, whether parenting matters for personality and other things, do you have any any view on this? Not really. I mean, I think that it, that it is an interesting debate. And in some sense, like, as as you say, there's sort of like clearly in the in the limits, we know that it does matter and that, you know, outcomes for kids are are different depending on features that we can see about their families, which does suggest that there are some aspects of upbringing and, and parenting which which matter. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the sort of specific things that I look at, even even in the book, the data sort of doesn't suggest that they matter too much. And so we're kind of between those between those extremes. And and I think it's then hard to answer the question, like, does parenting matter? I mean, to some extent for sure. Does it matter to the extent that we sometimes seem to talk about it? You know, maybe not, but I I I I don't think we have a way to put all of that together in a sort of like it matters 20% kind of summary. And, and it seems to me, and and this is just my read of, of of this debate, but it seems to me that a lot of it is coming down to what do you mean by does parenting matter? If you're asking like can parenting control who your child becomes, it seems it's quite a lot weaker there than than people would like to believe. You know, your personality seems in, in some ways even like hardwired and like there, there's a lot going on that that, that that the parents can't control. But in terms of creating a context for your child to become who they can become, it seems to matter a lot if they feel safe and secure and attached and are well fed and get enough sleep and and you know go to school with a full belly and, and all of that, that th those things are really, are really quite important. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So, so there's sort of a, there's a scaffolding that probably does matter. But if you said like, you know, can you make your kid into, you know, into this kind of person? I think that, that the, both the evidence and sort of most people's lived experience is, you know, not, not really. I mean, you can sort of alter them a little around the edges and provide them, you know, teach them the violin instead of the piano or whatever, but you, you can't make your kid Mozart um, just because you make them play the, the violin when they're two. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This is a, a question that's really about the previous book, but we moved to the Bay Area uh, as we were pregnant, um, or as my wife was pregnant, and it's a very natural childbirth culture out here. And we sort of bought into it um, and, you know, read a lot about how, you know, your your body is built to do this. And, um, you know, there's the, the medical uh, industry is like put so much on you. And and then we ended up having um, uh, by necessity a very, very medicalized pregnancy in a way that was pretty emotionally hard. And I'm curious, like I, I ended up seeing this really both ways. It seems like a huge amount of our discourse around pregnancy is about what can go wrong in a way that makes it hard, I think, for people to have a vision of it that isn't a medicalized vision. And on the other hand, the level of danger in it, you know, is really, really high. And there seems to be like a lot of cultural tussle over that now. And I'm, I'm curious, having done the book and, and thought about the evidence where you how you how you see all of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that sort of both both extremes are not good. So I think that sort of on the one hand, you have kind of the like everyone should uh, have an unmedicated birth, you know, in their house. And uh, and it's like, this is a natural thing people have been doing for, for you know, millions of years. And, you know, that, that's true, but like a lot of them died. And so I think that's like, that's sort of important to remember. On the other hand, I think that, that there sort of is more medicalization of the experience that is sort of necessary, at least for some, for some women. And I think that it, you know, I had a, a pretty straightforward pregnancy with both of my kids. I was very, I was very lucky. And I, you know, I, I did feel like there was a lot of pressure to kind of fit in this mold of like, you know, induction and medicalization of birth. And I think a lot of women, you know, end up feeling like that. It would be better if there were a middle, like a, a middle ground where we could acknowledge that like actually having access to medical care is really, really good in this setting. And yet, you know, sometimes this is going to go fine without sort of extensive medical intervention. And, you know, we should be comfortable with that also. And I I think part of what's happened is sort of people get, again, sort of very much in these camps of like, I'm this, I'm going to be this kind of person. Um, and I think that isn't very helpful um, for them or for their doctors or for for other people. Um, speaking of things that there's a, a tussle over in the Bay Area, there's a lot of concern about screen time as this tremendous experiment we're, we're running on our, ourselves, too, but our, our kids in particular, that you know, now there is access to a screen literally 24-7. You know, you can be looking at your, your dad's iPhone or iPad and go home and watch TV and play video games. And this could have really deleterious effects on attention or other things. You, you look at this a bit in the book, and I'm, I'm curious where you come down on it, on the evidence, and kind of where you come down on it for your own parenting. So, I, you know, where I come down on the evidence is that this this evidence is is very bad. I mean, we keep saying, like, the evidence isn't good on things. I mean, I think this is a place where there, there just isn't very much evidence at all on the kinds of questions that you want to ask. So, you know, there's maybe a little bit of evidence, um, some of which is actually written by my husband, um, on the impacts of television, you know, per se, which is, I think, is pretty reassuring and suggests that there aren't, you know, big negative impacts of, of TV. But, you know, as you say, we're sort of now in a world where it's not just TV, it's iPads and, and iPhones, and it's sort of a constant stream of things. And uh, and I we simply do not have the kind of data that we would probably like to evaluate that. And I think that's something we will get over time. Although, again, I think it's actually pretty hard to do studies like that um, because the choices that people make about screen time are wrapped up in other choices that they make about their kids. 
in the book, I talk a little bit about how I think it's important in a situation like this to, I think the colloquial term would be to trust your gut. Uh, the term I use in the book is to be Bayesian about it. Um, but <laughs> but to basically think a little bit about kind of what what do your priors say? Like, what is what did you think before you would see any data? Like, what would you think about, about sort of screen time? And I think that most of us would say, like, having your three-year-old playing on the iPad for nine hours a day is probably not a good idea. At the same time, you know, having your kids watch some television on the airplane so they don't kick the person in front of them and cause them to throw their peanuts, like, that's probably okay. Uh, and so sort of using some logic and not being so, like like tied to to the idea that the data has an answer for you that may be important here um in in my personal case um my kids watch some tv on the weekends while i make dinner um sometimes they watch with their dad cuz then there's like family time and they they are rewarded for playing their their violins uh with 6 minutes of ipad time every day 6 minutes how did you get <laughs> yeah, to 6 6 you get I don't remember. I, they, we have been at six minutes for a very long time, uh, and I can't. I can't remember why we chose six minutes. Like why it was not five minutes. I, my guess is I started at five, and then at some point, like my daughter, like negotiated me up to six, and then we got to six. One of the things I always think about this when I'm trying to to hit my Bayesian priors, and I'm somebody who's turned against smartphones and everything in the past couple of years, despite using one all of the time, is that on the one hand, it's just clear these are you see it in in kids famously where they'll just like they're they're so attracted to the television i mean you watch their eyes when they see screens and ipads even more this kind of hyper realistic super saturated coloration um and you see it with adults too um who are like staring at their phones and not each other so that seems bad and then on the other hand i think but this is a society everybody's living in you know and everything's going to be on screens and so maybe having you know being fully immersed in in the world you actually exist in is you know the the, the way it needs to be I guess there's not, I'm not, I don't have a great question coming out of this, but, but I'm curious if that sparks anything for you. No, I mean, I completely agree. And I think I don't, you sort of, you expect your kid is going to have to act in this world. And so maybe you should be preparing them for like having to use the, to use the iPad or, or do these kind of things. And yet somehow it doesn't feel right because, because you can sort of see that your three-year-old is like attached to the TV. And then when you're like, okay, we have to have dinner, they're like, no, why are you killing me? And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem like a good like a good reaction. And, you know, it, it stuff comes up all the time. Like my daughter uh, reads on a Kindle and, you know, she and so we got her like a like a reading Kindle. And I sort of like, well, is this and I sort of thought I was like, is this like an OK thing to do? You know, she's swiping. She's swiping through the pages. Of course, it's just a book. You know, it's not a Kindle that does anything else. It's really just a just a book. And that feels like that somehow should be OK. And yet, you know, I did have a moment is like maybe we should just stick with paper but it was we had to bring too many things on vacation so i had to i had to cave <laughs> i'm i'm a believer that the kindle paper whites don't count as screen time okay good thank they you they also have a weird thing where their the e ink doesn't have that refresh rate so i think it has a different effect on your eyes i've no evidence of this i'm just in some ways justifying the way i live i also read that thing about the e ink so i <laughs> yes um what after doing all this what sources do you trust when you have a question that isn't answered in one of your books you're trying to figure something out like where do you go? So for something medical, um, I I would always go to up to date, which is like the the like um, sort of repository for like if you are a doctor and you are wondering about something, it's like sort of like quite good like sort of summaries of of medical stuff. Um, so that's that's often where I will where I will start. Um, but sometimes I just start in like PubMed 
or in Google Scholar um, looking things up. I mean, I think the 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 challenge with that is you can sort of always find a study that supports one thing or another. And, you know, if you're looking for a particular answer, usually you can kind of find what the answer is. And I think the goal is often to try to figure out not just what some study says, but what the whole literature says. And and that's a much harder problem because if you're just on Google Scholar, like how do you know which of these papers is is the summary of the whole literature and which of them is important and which of them is not important? So I want to thank you for for the the work you've done here in, in the book. It really has been a, a breath of fresh air and a very, very complicated space for me, at least. Um, and let me ask you the question we always use to end the podcast, which is what are three books you would recommend to others that have made a difference for you? Um, so I have three recent things that I think are quite good, and some of them are funner, funner than others. So so one is uh, Dope Sick, which is about the opioid epidemic, which I've been thinking a lot about um, just sort of research-wise, and and that's a that's a really good sort of overall summary. Um, if you uh, if you want something fun, I recently read this book called The Shakespeare Requirement, which I would highly recommend to anyone who is an academic because it's all about university committees and how terrible they are. I mean, it's a novel, but it's about university committees. And the last thing is I've lately been reading uh, Emily Wilson's Odyssey translation, which is actually like a totally uh, awesome, really, really accessible uh, version of what actually turns out to be like a pretty great story. So I think that's that's my third. Emily Oster, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Emily for being here. Um, that conversation was, was great for me. <laughs> I hope it's interesting for you. Um, I, I have some, I'm, I'm going through something. Um, and thank you, of course, to Topher Ruth for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, and to all of you for, for listening. Desert Clown Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva.